Hey folks, and welcome back to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm your host, Brian Motes, and I'm the content manager at Theopolis Institute. We at Theopolis train men and women to lead cultural renewal by renewing the church. Participants in our programs learn to read the Bible imaginatively, worship God faithfully, and engage the culture intelligently. In this episode, we continue our series in the prophets, and here we'll be discussing the first half of the book of Daniel, chapter 4. We really hope that you enjoy this discussion, and we want to thank you so much for listening. And here are Peter Lightheart, James B. John, Jeffrey Myers, and Alistair Roberts discussing Daniel chapter 4. Welcome to the Theopolis Podcast. I'm Peter Lightheart, and I'm here today with Alistair Roberts, Jeff Myers, and James B. John. Brian Motes, as usual, is in the background recording, and he'll be editing and smoothing out everything so that it's easy for you to listen to. We're in the middle of a series on prophetic literature, and particularly we've been looking at the book of Daniel for the last month and a half or so, taking about two episodes per chapter. They're long chapters, and so we've divided them up and working slowly through. And we've looked at the first three chapters of Daniel today, and uh, next uh, in the next episode, we'll be t- looking at Daniel chapter four. And just to remind you of the scene that we're in, uh, first of all, the the large setting is that we're in the we're in the Aramaic section of Daniel. Daniel begins and ends with Hebrew sections, but then from chapters two through seven, it's written in Aramaic, and uh, we're in the middle of that section. And that part of the book is set up as a chiasm, an ABCCBA pattern, uh, with chapter two and chapter seven matching both of them prophecies, visions having to do with the four empires. Chapter three and chapter six matching, both having to do with uh, the faithfulness of Jews who resist idolatry and resist the uh, king's decree to commit idolatry. Uh, and then the middle chapters, chapters four and five, are related. They're both still in the era of Babylon, and both of them have something to do with uh, Nebuchadnezzar's experience uh, that we'll be talking about today and next time. That is, Nebuchadnezzar seeing the vision of the tree, Nebuchadnezzar being humbled and reduced to a beast, and then revived. That's the story that's told in chapter four, and it's alluded to in chapter five. So that story links the two chapters and at the center of this Aramaic section of Daniel. And we've also been looking at uh, the last several chapters as chapters that have to do with a progression in Nebuchadnezzar's relationship to God. Uh, he's, re- he's recognized Daniel as somebody who can interpret visions, who isn't baffled by any mysteries, and he's elevated Daniel back in chapter 2. Then uh, Daniel's friends, the three friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, are put to a test in Daniel chapter 3. They refuse to bow down to the image that Nebuchadnezzar sets up. Uh, and they're elevated, and uh, Nebuchadnezzar again honors the God of the Jews by uh, forbidding anyone from speaking blasphemy against the God of the Jews. But that comes to a climax in chapter four, where Nebuchadnezzar is the focal point of the vision that he receives, and he himself, his the cha- his change of heart, his change of mind, is really the focus. So we have, I think, uh, it's uh, accurate to call this the the account of Nebuchadnezzar's conversion, because he ends by declaring that the God of heaven is the God who rules on the earth uh, and the God who whose kingdom goes from generation to generations. So we've had that sequence of the last several chapters and that uh, this is the last chapter that uh, where Nebuchadnezzar is a character. And so that whole sequence of uh, events that has to do with Nebuchadnezzar is coming to a climax. And within Daniel itself, Daniel 4 itself, the, it's got a, a fairly neat chiasm. You have a real clear inclusio. Uh, the first few verses of Daniel 4 include this confession, how great are his signs, the God most high, 
How great are our signs, how mighty are his wonders. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom. His dominion endures from generation to generation. And then that same language is picked up at the end of the chapter, beginning at the end of verse 34 and 35. So the whole chapter is surrounded by these confessions of God Most High, which is the, the name that Nebuchadnezzar use, uses for Yahweh. And then within that, we have Nebuchadnezzar has a dream. Uh, Twelve months later, the dream is fulfilled. There are two dialogues with Daniel. There's one where the king recounts the dream to Daniel, uh, and then Daniel interprets the dream. Uh, and the middle seems to be uh, the beginning of verse 19, where Daniel's reacting to the vision or the dream that he's been told and is appalled and his thoughts alarm him. So Daniel's reaction is, uh, if not right at the center, at least near the center of the of the entire story. And that's kind of the hinge of it. So we have that, that kind of neat chiasm that's running, uh, that uh, organizes organizes this chapter. One of the striking things about the chapter is that it begins with Nebuchadnezzar. It's Nebuchadnezzar speaking, and Nebuchadnezzar speaking in first person. So this uh, has the form of a kind of royal decree from uh, the king of Babylon. And it's a decree that's sent out to the various nations that he rules, the people's nations and people of every language that live in all the earth. There's this a universal declaration, but it's it's a kind of decree, but it's also a kind of testimony put in the first person. It's it's Nebuchadnezzar's own own words. I wonder then, Peter, if from verses 19 through to, um, where are we, through to perhaps the end of 33, is more likely then to be sort of Daniel's insertion of some kind. I'm guessing that in a decree, Nebuchadnezzar would want to tell people that something has happened, but not give the impression that their king has kind of completely flipped his lid. And so <laughs> you could imagine that perhaps Daniel has constructed this chapter with parts of Nebuchadnezzar's own decree kind of spliced together with his own um, uh, sort of narrative which then isn't in the first person anymore, is it? And um, we have other examples of where that's done, like Ezra um, narrates effectively via um, decrees from the kings of Persia, and um, Nehemiah does something sort of similar with a census. Yeah, that's a, that's a good point. That uh, you've got a you got a chunk of the chapter that's that's in the third person, and then it comes back to once Nebuchadnezzar raises his eyes toward heaven in verse thirty four, then uh, he begins speaking again in. in uh, first person. I think that there's maybe a th thematic thing going on with the uh, grammatical person because he, I mean, he kind of loses himself, right? He loses his human heart and is given the heart of a beast. Uh, and in the period when he's given the heart of the beast, he doesn't have any consciousness of himself. And then when he acknowledges God, he not only acknowledges God, but he re-secures his own identity as it were at the end of the chapter. Uh, but uh, yeah, the the shift in uh, the shift in the grammatical person is an interesting phenomenon in the chapter. Uh, James, those other references you mentioned, uh, Nehemiah and, and Cyrus, are they in the first person? Isn't this one of the only places where you get a non-Jew writing a epistle to uh, and, and included in the Hebrew Aramaic scriptures? I seem to recall that. I, at least I've got that written down in my notes. It's one of the only places. Yeah, that that's true. Um, well, I, I think that's true. I, I was um, I was thinking in terms of it looks like a quote in um, uh, Ezra. So I wasn't thinking so much about the first person, but about the fact that sort of someone else's speech has just been taken and, and transcribed mm -hmm. in there. Right. 
in a sense, you're saying that this is similar because you're thinking Daniel is organizing the entire chapter, but he includes a what seems to be a public decree, but then Daniel is telling this, the actual narrative of the fulfillment of the of this uh, dream. Daniel Daniel's apparently telling that because that goes back to the third person. Yeah, I think so. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, we're we're skipping skipping toward the past the middle of the chapter, but uh, I mean one of the even the even though Daniel is uh, writing in third person in the latter part of the chapter, it's clear that it's based on Nebuchadnezzar's personal experience because verses twenty eight and following you have a thought from Nebuchadnezzar that is the and words of Nebuchadnezzar that lead to his lead to the fulfillment of the dream. So even even if it's Daniel writing that, it's something that's based on. Nebuchadnezzar's personal experience. So that's that personal experience is really running through the whole chapter, even when it shifts the grammatical person. Something that that structure does is give the um, chapter a kind of shape in that it starts off well and then goes through a big dip and then sort of ends well. And obviously it's topped and tailed with Nebuchadnezzar's own testimony. And that whole shape, we could think, standing in the background of that, of the um, vision at the start of chapter 7, where we have this um, beast, which I assume is meant to represent Nebuchadnezzar, and you know it begins like a lion with eagle's wings, so it's kind of a high flyer, you know, and then its wings are plucked off, and it's sort of assumed that it then falls to the ground, um, and then it's lifted up, and it's given uh, two feet, given to stand on two feet, and it says like a man, and the heart of a man was given to it, which feels very much like the conversion experience that we've got. Here and it's the same then shape as well in that it sort of got this dip in in the right. middle. Right. We should probably say something about um, what's been called the prayer of Nabonidus, which is a fragment of a Dead Sea Scroll, which many have argued is um, a text upon which Daniel chapter four is dependent. Um, Andrew Steinman presents a very strong case, so I think that it's the other way round that the prayer of Nabonidus, which has very similar details, there's a Babylonian king, he has a he's struck by the Lord, he has a serious skin condition, he's struck for seven years, and then one of the Judean exiles um helps and calls him to exalt God, and when he does so, he's healed and he makes a proclamation. Um there seems to be so many similarities between this and the account of Daniel chapter four that some relation would seem natural, even in the on a literary level. And mm. although many um, liberal scholars have presented this as proof that Daniel is a later text, I think the evidence would actually point in the other direction that the um, Dead Sea Scroll is evidence of the existence of the text of Daniel beforehand and of its being an influence upon later texts. Yeah, I'm I'm wondering if James has any insight on some of the language used here, because oftentimes liberal scholars will place this during the Maccabean period as a, you know, pseudepigrapha, at least a a pseudo story anyway, designed to... uh, well, I'm not sure what it's designed to do in the Maccabean period. That's an odd thing. But still, um, it seems as if other commentators will point to uh, the, the, the the language here, the words here. Uh, and, for example, like in verse 7, 
uh, the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers, um, and all these words seem to have some some grounding in the uh, you know sixth century BC, and not so much the uh, well, what the third century BC. And I'm wondering, James, do you have, do you have any insight on at, in terms of the language uh, and its um, its place in history? I haven't got any specific comment on the the language of this chapter, um, but I mean, I think you're onto something when you, you, you say. I don't know what this thing would be doing in Maccabean times. And I think that's spot on in a way. One of the unusual things about these chapters as a whole is they give quite a balanced portrayal of the Gentile rule, don't they? If you think of the Colossus, initially it's depicted as this thing with glory, God's glory has been given to it and it's gold and lustrous and impressive. You know, And if you think about this tree, um, initially at least it's, flourishing and green and it provides um food for the nations and a place of shelter and you know these are not the ways in which the maccabeans saw the seleucids rule over them and and particularly not antiochus's it was it was never a good rule and and so you've got something that kind of does fit babylon and really doesn't fit particularly well if you displace it a few um a few centuries you know um that's a great point <laughs> just um Going back to Alistair's comment as well about the um, Nabonidus' prayer, something that I think is very awkward in the way in which liberal scholars say that Daniel has been based on Nabonidus' prayer is that if you have things going that way round, then you kind of get the opposite progression from normal because normally it's thought that you have a fairly primitive legend and then over time it gets built up and theologized and uh, all the rest of it. But actually, Nabonidus's prayer, the, the account that we have in, in Qumran, is much more developed and theological than Daniel. Um, it talks about the king's uh, sins and the king being forgiven, and it talks about God and the um, the Jewish exile plays a major role there. If you think about Nebuchadnezzar's conversion at the end of this chapter, it's quite understated, isn't it? It it simply says he lifts his eyes to the heavens you know there's no explicit mention of god um actually you know i mean it's all there in the story obviously but it the, the account itself is quite understated um daniel doesn't heal him in any way or take any great praise for it after the interpretations he just disappears from the story and it's quite a um it's quite a bare account and and so yeah i think it works much better saying that never uh, Nabonidus's prayer came from this rather than vice versa. In, in fact, it's so understated that it might be accurate to say that most Christian commentators question whether Nebuchadnezzar was actually converted. Um, I think it's I think it's um, Steinman who says that you know he has a kind of conversion to civil righteousness, uh, but not a genuine heart conversion, and I. I think because um, Steinman deals uh, so extensively with Nabonidus' uh, text, uh, he I think he wonders whether uh, there really was a genuine repentance, uh, say, as in the case of the king of Nineveh back in Jonah, we're looking at. There doesn't, that language is not used here. Um, and so there are a lot of a lot of commentators who wonder whether this is genuine or not, or if it's just... Uh, 
I, I don't I don't know how in the world you can read this <laughs> text and not come away with the fact that Nebuchadnezzar has a genuine conversion. It might not look like becoming a Jew, um, obviously not, but my goodness, how else uh, would you phrase this other than the way it's phrased if you wanted to convey a genuine change of heart? Yeah, that's exactly the point I was going to make, Jeff. Verse 37, especially, I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise, exalt, and honor the king of heaven, for all his works are true and his ways just, and he is able to humble those who walk in pride. I mean, uh, I'll take that. Uh, he he doesn't obviously understand double imputation or the doctrine of justification by faith, so we have some doubts. Um, but you know, if if we had our rulers uh, going around saying stuff like that, <laughs> uh, I'd be perfectly content to call them brothers. <laughs> but you do know that this is a huge thing. Oh, yeah. I, I, when I preached on, when I preached on this maybe twenty years ago. It here at this church, and I was fairly new here. I was like five years into my ministry, and I talked about Nebuchadnezzar's conversion. And afterwards, I couldn't believe the flack that I got from people. Uh, and a lot of it has to do, well, one, with the fact that people think you need to become a Jew in order to be saved in the Old Testament. Uh, but two, they're looking for some kind of formula uh, in these Old Testament stories that— uh, and they're imposing that and not really just taking into account the language the um, and and the story itself and how it's how it's composed and it's very difficult to get through to some people some modern christians that all of these guys like you know the king of Nineveh or Pharaoh or Nebuchadnezzar or even Jethro uh, Moses father-in-law, that they're actually believers, that they're God-fearers. Hmm. Something we can throw into the mix is the fact, as I mentioned, that chapter 7, um, uh, that first beast, is, is given the heart of a man. And what's significant there is that in chapter 7, the whole vision is of beasts. The only human figure is the exalted son of man on the clouds of heaven. So having a, a human heart mentioned there in chapter 7 feels hugely mm -hmm. significant. Yeah, yeah. yeah, great point. Yeah, I think the bigger point, uh, Jeff, I think the, the sticking point is what you said earlier, that uh, people assume that conversion meant conversion to becoming a Jew and uh, don't recognize that there's a, a continuous thread throughout the Old Testament of non-Jewish, God-fearing Gentiles who are being saved, honoring the God of Abraham and uh, bowing to him in, in one way or another. Uh, but without uh, without becoming Jews, and that's I think that's the that's the background issue. But I think I think you're right. That's a that's a uh, that's a consistent thread through the Old Testament. God didn't God didn't start bringing Gentiles to Himself uh, after Pentecost. That that starts way back. We remarked in chapter three upon the way in which the setting up of the golden image was, in likelihood, in part a reaction against the dream of chapter two. It was a way of averting that potential outcome that it was a statement of the enduring character of the um, empire of Babylon and of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom, and that it would not actually be over, it would not first be succeeded by these other kingdoms, nor would it be overthrown by the kingdom of God. And the proclamation at the beginning of this chapter seems to be very significant as, it, as an admission of the true character of God's kingdom. and by implication of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom relative to it. 
something that adds into that is, I guess, the the um, emphasis on the heart. You know, in chapter three, Nebuchadnezzar is frustrated because he can fill everyone with fear and chuck them into the furnace, but he can't change people's heart and get um, the willing obedience of his subjects. Um, and yet, I guess in chapter four, God shows that he can. Um, he can change the heart of even the most stubborn um, pagan king. And so you've got that nice um, parallel between the nature of those two kingdoms you were mentioning, Alistair. I think picking up on uh, some of Alistair's comments, um, I think it's uh, it's interesting to compare the situation that Nebuchadnezzar is in with the original Babel situation. We've talked about this in past episodes that these chapters about Nebuchadnezzar have all have some kind of tower imagery. You've got the dream of the statue. You've got the image that was set up. You've got the tree that reaches to heaven. Uh, but this is a Babel that is is actually holding together peoples and nations and men from every language. That's what uh, verse one says. And you have a Babel that where the king is uh, submitting ultimately to the God of heaven. So you have a you have a Babel project that is uh, turned to God's purposes. And I think you have the same kind of thing. The, the reference to signs and wonders in verses two and three is curious. Most of the time that that phrasing is used, it's used in the Pentateuch to describe what the Lord does in Egypt. He performs signs and wonders, great terrors in Egypt. And then uh, in the latter part, in the rest of the Old Testament, uh, largely that language is used to describe the Exodus or some Exodus-like event. Uh, but so that you have the Exodus evoked by that language, but here you this is Nebuchadnezzar is not a pharaoh. <laughs> the pharaoh who saw the signs and wonders of Moses didn't convert. He didn't humble himself. He kept glorifying his heart instead of humbling his heart. Uh, and you have this kind of uh, inversion of Exodus, as you do has, have a kind of inversion of Babel, where instead of the Jews becoming slaves, the Jews are being exalted. It's different from Egypt. Instead of uh, the Sethites. Um, or rather the Shemites joining with the Hamites to build the Tower of Babel, you have faithful Jews who are advising and counseling and guiding the kings. And so you have this imperial structure that's, that's leavened by the faithful Jews that are there that actually, that actually has a, again, it's, it's being used for God's purposes rather than in defiance of God. So I think that that fits with the idea that Nebuchadnezzar is going through a genuine conversion here, that there's a real, there's been a historical shift from the early imperial portraits that we had early in the Bible until this post uh, this exilic and post exilic period. There's been a major shift in the way that God is dealing with and the way He's ruling over these empires. Hmm. Yeah, piggybacking on that, uh, Peter. It I, you know I noticed this too about the signs and wonders, and it being associated with the wonders in Egypt and the. Uh, uh, exile of or the exodus of the people of Israel, but also signs and wonders, especially wonders, often associated with God's covenantal acts, His His being faithful to His covenant and His uh, working, His promises, His covenantal promises. And I'm wondering here too if obviously this is an individual salvation, this individual conversion, but it's also it has a covenantal significance. Mm. Uh, this is a new kind a covenant. This is a new covenantal arrangement, whereas where Nebuchadnezzar uh, is uh, something of the covenantal head, uh, and uh, uh, the Jews are now, and all other nations are being incorporated into this in this new covenant. Anyway, that's just I'll throw that out there. I think you have another connection, not 
so much with the Egypt of the Exodus generation, but the Egypt of Joseph's generation. Mm -hmm. And Joseph was described in chapter 41, verse 38 of Genesis as a man in whom is the Spirit of God. And that description by Pharaoh is very similar to the one that we have in verse 8 of Daniel by Nebuchadnezzar. It seems that both of them recognize, recognize something of the Most High God within this particular Jewish counselor. Something which has occurred to me looking, something that's occurred to me looking at this chapter, and which ties in with some of the Babelesque notions that we've discussed, is the way in which it very much just zooms in on Nebuchadnezzar and his own relationship with and responsibility before God. It's it's a kind of vertical um, battle in some senses, isn't it? Some of the later chapters with for instance, the ram and the goat is a kind of east meets west collision. And then in chapter 11, we have sort of the king of the north versus the king of the south. So those are battles fought on the horizontal plane. But this is a, a vertical battle. And that seems to be brought out by, in all sorts of ways, in, in the text. There's the repeated references to the heavens and the earth and the tree kind of goes up and the watcher is said to descend. And you have the most high contrasted with the lowliest of men and then sort of at the climax of the book the king kind of goes up to his roof and the words are said to kind of descend upon him and all that seems to just kind of play into some of the Isaiah 14 type imagery of of lifting up but as I say also to the the, uh, God-centered nature of it and the way in which kind of it's this heaven and earth contest now that's going on. When Nebuchadnezzar has the dream initially uh, he he kind of repeats the the same process that uh, we saw in chapter two, when he saw the the vision of the of the great statue, he brings out all his wise men, the conjurers, the magicians, the Chaldeans, the diviners, uh, and he this time he does relate the dream to them, and uh, they can't interpret it. So we have this contest between Daniel and the other magicians of, of Babylon, similar to the conflicts between Moses and the magicians of Egypt. Uh, but we have Daniel coming in last after all the failures. How do you take that? What's why is Daniel not among those magicians, conjurers, Chaldeans, and diviners that come in and attempt to interpret it first? You can you can see the dramatic the dramatic reason for that. You have the failure, and then you have the the Jewish stage come in and give his interpretation successfully. But what would what would be on Nebuchadnezzar's mind, or what would why would Daniel be left out of the initial consultation? I mean, my my own theory, and it is only a theory, is that. What Nebuchadnezzar really wants from his dream is a sort of uh, a palatable interpretation of it. I mean, he's made things fairly easy compared to chapter two, hasn't he? He's um, telling them the dream um, up front, whereas he wanted it to be uh, revealed to him in chapter two as a sort of test of the genuineness of their interpretation. Um, There's no death threat. You know, Nebuchadnezzar seems a bit more chilled (laughs) in this particular chapter. And, and, he he hasn't invited Daniel along, who you would think was one of his chief. Uh, well, he is. He's said to be the head of the um, of his order at the time, isn't he? So I, I get the feeling that, as I say, speculation, but that he knows Daniel will tell him the truth. But what he really wants is a kind of easy to stomach interpretation from his wise men, so that he can kind of calm him down and he can get on with his life as normal. Do any of you wonder whether the was other wise men just wouldn't tell 
Nebuchadnezzar what they thought the dream meant. It doesn't seem like it's a really difficult dream to interpret. That just may be because we're familiar with it, but the imagery doesn't seem that convoluted. And it's certainly possible that they just didn't want to say to him what they thought the dream meant. Maybe this also is the reason why in verse 19, that when Daniel hears the dream, he's so dismayed, he's alarmed, he's uh, traumatized by it. And maybe he's the only one who's actually going to tell Belshazzar what the dream means. Of course, Daniel's going to know more than the others, but maybe they just discerned that this was about their king's downfall and no one dared to tell him. It reminds me of Ahab with his 400 prophets, and then Micaiah is the only one who actually tells him the word of the Lord in the midst of that. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar anticipates that, and so he avoids hearing from Daniel. On your point, Jeff, that this is something that we shouldn't find that hard to interpret. We might think of um, Ezekiel chapter 31, where there is a very similar sort of vision um, given concerning um, Egypt and Pharaoh. Assyria is compared to a great cedar, and then mm. it's also applied to Egypt. Yeah. I mean, and we also find nations and empires described like this precisely in Babylonians, uh, Babylonian texts <laughs> and even in Nebuchadnezzar's own inscriptions. Um, I think I probably uh, sort of speculated or floated the idea in a previous time that um, – the idea of an interpretation here and in Babylonian literature has the idea of also um, putting forward a way in which things can be mitigated. And um, Daniel does that in verse 27. Um, it's not probably the sort of uh, the recipe that Nebuchadnezzar wanted. Um, often you would just perform a ritual of some sort in order to um, dispel a bad dream, to dispel its consequences. Um there are uh, accounts of various rituals in Babylonian texts that you can do to, to nullify a dream. But Daniel's is to um, yeah, break off your sins by practicing righteousness and to show mercy to the oppressed and, and so forth. And um, so that's his, that is part of his interpretation um, and seems to be the way in which interpretations went in, in, in those days. You kind of predicted what would happen and then what kind of could happen if people acted appropriately. It's a bit like disease modeling. You know, you'll portray some crazy future and then give some solution. And if it doesn't come to pass, you just say, well, no one did it properly. You know, um, <laughs> sorry, you can cut that bit out. That, never, that never happens, James. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's significant here that uh, Daniel is uh, identified by as Belteshazzar uh, in verse 8. This is this is Nebuchadnezzar's words. They, he calls him Daniel, but then immediately calls him Belteshazzar, according to the name of my God. Um, the name Daniel appears only one other time in verse nineteen, and again it's immediately it's immediately followed by his Babylonian name. And when the king is speaking to him, he's using the Babylonian name repeatedly. In contrast to earlier earlier examples, uh, earlier chapters where Daniel is identified more often as Daniel than by his other name. So it seems like. He's in the. He is playing the role of the chief of the magicians. Uh, that's his. That's his designated position in the Babylonian court, uh, and the name that's given to him shows that he's he's functioning in that capacity. He's he's the uh, he's an official interpreter and uh, 
magus of the uh, of Babylon. How do you take the uh, phrase? Uh, 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 Nebuchadnezzar says that he knows that in Daniel and Belteshazzar there is a spirit of the holy gods. That's the Aramaic form of Elohim, which is a would be a plural. Is that a reference to the god of the god of the Jews, or is it? Uh, it's still a kind of polytheistic statement. I wonder if it's deliberately ambiguous. I mean, this is part of a proclamation. I wonder if it's the sort of thing that he would write and some people would get the deeper truth and others wouldn't. I, I don't know. What do you guys think? The connection with the character of Joseph might give mm-hmm. some hint. I think more generally, my tendency is just to see it as ambiguous. It could be read in either way. And we've already seen the figure of the... Um, the fourth figure that's like the son of the gods in the fiery furnace again a sort of figure that probably was understood in one way within the babylonian understanding of nebuchadnezzar and another way for the readers of the text with a background in the hebrew scriptures yeah that that's what i was thinking exactly um that because at this point in the story anyway in verse 8 and even in verse where is it? Uh, the end, verse 18. If we're positing a genuine conversion of Nebuchadnezzar at this point, he's probably using it in the Babylonian sense. Um, but of course, in the end, he comes to recognize that the Most High God and his spirit is in Daniel. And so then, it, so we can read this as maybe Nebuchadnezzar's, at this point, ignorant kind of understanding. But of course, he comes to a fuller understanding at the end of the story. Hmm. There's, there is perhaps something of a, a progression here in uh, the way Daniel's being characterized from the Babylonian perspective. I think that uh, that reference to the spirit of the holy gods is this is the first time that comes up, I believe, in Daniel. It's repeated in uh, Daniel five eleven when the queen comes in and tells Belshazzar about the uh, about about Daniel, and she describes him as a man in whom is a spirit of the holy gods, but also a man who has an extraordinary spirit, knowledge and wisdom, interpretation of dreams and so on. So um, there's a recognition of Daniel's gifts, but there's a movement from seeing him just as kind of a gifted person or somebody in whom there's an extraordinary spirit, somebody whose extraordinary spirit depends on the gift of the gods and ultimately the gift of the of the holy god. Yeah, as James said, the, uh, the idea of a of a of an imperial tree uh, is an is a, a common ancient idea. There's a there's a, a strong biblical basis for it. Alistair pointed to Ezekiel 31, and there are other passages where trees function in this way. Their trees are the you know they physically go from low to high. They're linking uh, earth and heaven, as it were, uh, and then all the other things that are described here as being part of the tree. They have uh, foliage and leaves, uh, which uh, remind us of the leaves that are. Uh, always green on the tree beside the still waters in uh, in Psalm two, or like the the leaves that are for the healing of the nations in Revelation twenty two. Uh, the tree provides food and it provides shelter for the birds and the bees. So it's a it's a it's a suitable natural image of a ruler who is uh, providing protection and shade and food and peace and healing for his for his kingdom uh, because. He has this link with with heaven. Uh, that the uh, uh, the uh, connection with heaven is the source of his capacity to spread life and uh, flourishing to his kingdom. That's the way that Israelite kings are 
envisioned and symbolized. I mean, Psalm 1, which is at the head of the Psalter, certainly is about the king, a uh, tree planted by the water and bearing fruit. Um, but is is this a, and I, I recognize, I think uh, <clears throat> James just said that the, this is often used in Babylonian literature, but is there anywhere else in the Bible where a, a, um, a non a uh, Jewish non-Israelite king is is referred to as as a um, as a tree like this. This this it it almost it appears like um, the uh, language and imagery of an Israelite king is now being applied to uh, Nebuchadnezzar to this Babylonian king. Um, you do have the same thing in Ezekiel thirty-one, which would have been oh, written the, around the same time. Um, so. Oh, that's about Pharaoh? Yep. Okay. Pharaoh in Assyria. Okay. And related to this connection here with uh, kingship and Israel and, and the pagan rulers is, and I don't have it with me, and I didn't get a chance to look at it, but I, I recall, and it got at my notes here, that uh, Jim Jordan uh, makes a reference to back to the story of David in Second Samuel, that... that um, Nebuchadnezzar's story here is a recapitulation, if you will, of the story of David's fall in 2 Samuel. So God God gave David the kingdom. Uh, uh, David built this palace. Um, and then in his pride and ease, he stops fighting the Lord's war and he sends Joab out with the ark and doesn't go himself and he's resting and then he's he's uh, on the roof of his palace and he sees the wife of Uriah and all this and then you know then he then he comes crashing down and also uh, in relation to David's pride in numbering his uh, in must in mustering the army apart, apart from the Lord's command all all of this uh, is then applied to Nebuchadnezzar, or, or Nebuchadnezzar kind of recapitulates it. So Nebuchadnezzar has this is is under the same kinds of obligations, under the same kinds of requirements and duties that an Israelite king is. And when he fails at it, then he's judged and he is uh, is punished for it, as David was. No. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> I, I agree entirely. Yeah, it's, I find it interesting that when um, more critical and sort of skeptical commentators notice connections like that, they immediately springboard into removing the historical element of the uh, of the narrative and saying that what's going on is is merely literary. So you know, Nebuchadnezzar is portrayed like David, and we don't need to worry about the history of the thing but i mean i just find that such an odd way of viewing history it's like don't we believe that men are similar and fail in similar ways and that untold numbers of people have kind of been lifted up in pride and that god has dealt with them in very similar ways and if that's the case it just feels like you would have these repeated incidents you know and beyond that when we see repetition in scripture it's, it is never just repetition for the sake of it. If you're looking at, for instance, the stories in Genesis of various kings taking the wives of the patriarchs, they're not just 
repetitions. There's something of a progression between the stories. There are differences between the stories. And in the very dissimilar, in the very similarities, our eyes are drawn to the dissimilarities. And both of those things prove illuminating. I think we can often focus so much upon the similarities. There's a particular type scene or pattern playing out here. And it's almost as if our eyes glaze over. We've read this before, but the very similarities provide us a framework for recognizing salient differences. And I think it's one of the ways in which we can hold characters together in scripture. And yet they receive a greater salience by means of their relationship. There's a similarity in difference. And it's the very similarity holding them together that gives their differences their true weight. Right. And in this case, one of the key differences would be seen in Jesus, who, when he is lifted up, you know, on the temple by Satan and offered the kingdoms of the world, um, responds in humility rather than pride. And on that point, I'd actually say we could go further. I think in many respects, we could read particularly Mark's account of Jesus' baptism and crucifixion, or baptism and temptation as a playing out of the same sort of pattern. He, the, instead of the watcher coming down, you have the Holy Spirit coming down. You have the, um, casting of him out to dwell among the beasts. You have um, the message of John the Baptist, the axe is laid to the root of the trees. There are a lot of similar themes. And it seems to me that Jesus as the son of David is going through a very similar pattern. And maybe we should read the two stories alongside each other. Yeah, Back to the David uh, Nebuchadnezzar parallel that Jeff pointed out. I I agree with that. And I agree too that uh, demands are Similar, I think the uh, Israelite kings had unique requirements, unique demands on them, obviously. But uh, I mean, the fact that Daniel exhorts Nebuchadnezzar to uh, repent and do justice, I mean, shows that there's God expects uh, certain standards of justice to be upheld in Gentile territories. I think in in terms of the differences that Alistair is highlighting, it seems to me like one of the differences between Nebuchadnezzar and David is in the aftermath of his fall because David, he loses the kingdom and he comes back. So he, he, he goes into exile and he returns, but he's never the same David after Absalom's rebellion. The latter part of Second Samuel, he's passive. There's another rebellion that starts up almost immediately afterwards. David doesn't really take control of that. Joab does instead. And Joab kind of takes over the kingdom almost. And then you have the scenes at the beginning of First Kings where David is David is on his deathbed, not able to keep warm. He doesn't have any energy of his own, and he's being controlled and not exactly dictated to, but he's being controlled and manipulated by people in his court. Even if it's the good ends, it shows that he's lost lost his uh, his capacity to rule. And I think that uh, Nebuchadnezzar, though, not only is, has his kingdom restored, but um, surpassing greatness is added, according to verse 36, so it's it's better in the end than in the beginning. It's more like a Job story than a David story. So there's, a, I think that's one of the one of the differences with the with the Davidic storyline. Yeah, but Peter, we don't, but we don't even have anything else written about Nebuchadnezzar after this. And there might be a similarity here because uh, Belteshazzar, it, uh, where what does he do? He does he call Nebuchadnezzar his father, or I can't remember. He's obviously not his father. But Nebuchadnezzar is a father of the mm-hmm. the kingdom that he uh, inherits, and so and Belshazzar, as a son of Nebuchadnezzar, is uh, certainly 
like almost like an Absalom yeah. uh, in, in some ways. Yeah, that's that's a good point. Interesting. So the vision starts with this grand tree image, uh, this imperial tree, like a cosmic tree. Uh, the vision itself, the action of the vision, of course, is the chopping down of the tree. The branches are cut off. The leaves are the leaves are uh, stripped. The fruit is scattered. The birds flee, and the uh, the birds fly away. The beasts flee. So you have, if this is a Tower of Babel image, then you have kind of a scattering from Babel. So the the drama of the vision is what's going to happen to the tree. Obviously, that is going to be chopped down. And, and a couple of things that I want to raise about that. One is that the fact that we have this this watcher, a holy one, descend from heaven to announce this. This is the first, I think the first reference to a watcher. Maybe there's been one other earlier in, in Daniel, but we're going to have those kind of figures come up later. So a question about who those characters are. Uh, and then uh, the uh, the tree is cut down and the stump is left in the ground. I mean, that could be an image of hope, you know, the kingdom of David is going to be cut down, according to Isaiah, but there'll be a stump left and there'll be a, a branch that springs up, a sprig comes up from the stump. Is that stump, um, the remaining stump, a sign that it's not a complete desolation of Nebuchadnezzar's kingdom? There's, there is hope for a tree that it'll smell the water, as Job says, and it'll again spring up. Yeah, I, I, I think it is. I mean, I, I also think the um, tree kind of coming into contact with heaven is a significant thing it's top reach to heaven I, I have here and reminds me very much of in jonah for instance um uh nineveh's sins rise up before um heaven they, they get heaven's unwanted attention i suppose or even in uh, revelation when it talks about babylon's sins being piled up one on top of another to the heavens it, it feels like the sin of a pagan king can kind of fly under the radar but only for so long and then it kind of comes into heaven's uh uh field of vision so to speak and uh and judgment is then declared and the particular judgment that's declared kind of fills in a few of the missing elements of the um tower of babel doesn't it so you have um some heavenly creatures apparently descend they they issue um plural imperatives um just as they do in the uh, Babel, you know, let, let let us go down. And um, we have at the end of it, really, Nebuchadnezzar left unable to communicate. You know, he's like a beast and, and sort of seems at the very least isolated from people. Um, and the beasts, which represent nations, are said to scatter in all directions. So we've, we've got a bit more um, tower-like imagery filled in here. What do we make of the... Um band of iron and bronze we've had iron and bronze earlier in the vision of the image or the dream of the image and the statue what's their significance here well one of the things that's happening at that point it seems or near that point in the uh in the dream is a shift from the tree so you got beginning of verse 15 you're still with the stump and the roots you have the band of iron and bronze and then the following lines are about let him be drenched with the dew of heaven. Let him share with the beasts of the grass. This isn't talking about a tree anymore. Verse 16, the mind be changed or the heart be changed from that of a man and a beast's heart be given to him. So, um, I mean, it, it could be that the iron and bronze is um, part of that, that shifting of an image from the tree to the, to the man. Uh, that doesn't explain it, but it may open up other ways of thinking about it. 
something I've thought might be going on is that the band is kind of God's um, protection of the tree in that it can be chopped down to a certain amount, but not below the band. So it's almost as if God is saying sort of thus far and no further. So he, he will allow a certain amount of judgment to go on, but he will assign limits to it. Um, another thing, I guess, which could be going on is similar terms like the term band sort of uh, is used just of fetters and things associated with slavery. And um, just as in Israelite law, slaves are kept for seven years and then set free or at least offered freedom. Um, here we have seven periods of time. And at the end of it, Nebuchadnezzar is going to be um, released from his afflictions. So that that may be going on. Um, another image possibly even in the background is, is that of Cain. I mean, um, gold initially, both in Daniel and in the Bible more generally is, is associated with glory. Uh, it's mentioned first in Eden, but bronze and iron are first mentioned with Cain, who is sort of driven away from men and, and sort of turfed out and separated from man, which certainly goes on in Nebuchadnezzar's case. And then the seven is important in um, Cain's story too. On the seven, I wonder whether there is some connection to be drawn with the uh, 70 weeks um, in chapter nine. You have a vision with the seven weeks of years, then 62 weeks of years, and then a final week. And here you have seven times. Then at the end of um, chapter five, you have Darius the Mede, who comes to the kingdom at 62 years old. And then you have an emphasis upon his first year. And it seems to me that maybe we're supposed to read those two things alongside each other, that perhaps the events of the first week might help to interpret what's taking place here with Nebuchadnezzar and vice versa. That's an interesting suggestion. Um, the the thing that is kind of on the surface of that is that you've got seven periods of time, whether they're months or years or some other uh, some other period. It's a it's a sabbatical it's a sabbatical creation number. So there's a there's a decreation. Certainly, the tree is being cut down. Uh, and Nebuchadnezzar is going to be restored and enthroned after the after the seven periods of time, which is a you know not just a restoration, a recreation at the end of these seven periods, but also an enthronement uh, that takes place at the end of the seven periods. That's a that's a sabbatical theme. So yeah, there could be other other things going on, but on the surface, it seems like there's a there's a creation motif, decreation and then recreation. Yeah. Something that underlines the decreation is in verse 14, after the tree has been cursed, the order of the imagery that's mentioned seems significant. First, it's beasts, then birds, and then later grass and dew, and then only finally heaven and earth. So it does feel like there's this rewinding through the week mm. of creation. Mm. Yeah. Thank you again for enjoying this episode of the Theopolis Podcast. For more information and for more content from Theopolis, you can check us out online at theopolisinstitute.com. We release new articles every Tuesday and Thursday on our blog, so you'll want to make sure to look out for those. You can also find us on Twitter at underscore Theopolis and on Facebook if you just search for our name. If you've been helped, sharpened, and encouraged by this podcast, we'd really love it if you would go to iTunes and leave us a review. It just takes a few seconds, and it really will help us along in getting our content in front of new listeners. 
that's all for now, friends. We really look forward to being with you all again in the next episode. And as always, thank you so much for listening.